0: Acts chapter 20. We're going to talk about this idea of encouragement today, and uh, it's, it's a word that I don't know that we have a lot of healthy context for in our culture. I don't know. What makes you encouraged? Have you ever thought about that? It's not something that you talk about a lot, but we all know that we, we go into some conversations, some situations, uh, some moments in life, and we come out of them, and we're like, wow, that was, I'm really encouraged. Like, I'm ready to go. This feels great. And then you go into other ones, and you're like, it just sucked the life out of me, right? It just was like, not ink, like whatever the opposite of encouraged was. It was just like, I went in here and I came out here. And so I think that it's actually more important than we think, uh, given how the word is used in the New Testament. Um, we're going to spend today looking at an odd section of scripture that probably. Most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about. It's probably viewed as just like a connecting piece. Like, oh, Paul was trying to get from here to here, and in between stories, these are the cities he went to. But it actually gives us a really great understanding of the simplicity of what Paul was doing on these missionary journeys. And actually, not just Paul we're going to read about. Uh, We're going to take a bigger picture view of the disciples, the the early apostles, the early church. How did church leaders interact with one another um, as they went through uh, building the church? So let's jump into Acts chapter 20. Just a reminder, Paul had come to Ephesus three years earlier he was teaching the word of God, got kicked out of the synagogue there. So he began teaching daily in some building called the Hall of Tyrannus. We have no idea what that is, but he did that for about three years. Seems like maybe this was kind of the first Bible college that had ever existed or something like that. And at some point, so many people in the city of Ephesus had experienced radical life transformation that they stopped buying the little silver uh idols made of artemis and the temple of artemis and so the silversmiths got real upset at this because their livelihood was being threatened they weren't making as much money because all these jesus followers were going around saying that gods made by hands weren't real gods and so they started a riot last week uh in acts chapter 19 and so um that riot has just calmed down. Uh, the town clerk kind of jumped into there and said, hey, uh, like a city official, he said, hey, this is, we're going to get charged with a crime of rioting here if we don't disperse this. So a couple hours later, uh, the crowd kind of dispersed. And that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 20. So after the uproar ceased, verse one, so that uproar is this riot that has just taken place in the theater in Ephesus that the silversmiths kind of instigated uh, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And we had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came again to Greece. And there he spent three months. When a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, but he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Tromphius. And they went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread, and in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to part on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead but when Paul went down and bent over him, taking up in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth alive, youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing there, we came the following day to Chios, sorry. The next day we touched the Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to, set sail, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, uh, I'm going to throw a map up there, because there was a whole bunch of areas in here, and actually quite a bit of time, right? So, Paul, these are... Um, the Roman Empire, if you didn't know, had recently conquered uh, the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great basically conquered the whole world. Um, At the time, the Roman Empire was now replacing the Greek Empire. So these are uh, Roman states that have kind of been set up, Roman territories, right? And over here, we have Asia. This is modern-day Turkey, right? Over here, we have Acacia, uh, which in your Passage today is kind of known as Greece, and then up top, on the top left, we have Macedonia, okay? And then we have Troas, which is mentioned here, uh, is a city, kind of top, right, middle in your screen there. So, Paul is in Ephesus, which, uh, Ephesus is right here, if you didn't know, right? So, Paul is in Ephesus, after this uproar, Uh, he, it says, encouraged the disciples, and then left, and went over to... um, Philippi, which is in Macedonia, right? He said he was going to Macedonia, so he went by ship, and what he was going to do is Jerusalem's down here, so he was going to go through Macedonia, down through Greece, uh, through probably Athens and Corinth, because remember he spent a lot of time in Corinth, and then sail back down over here to Jerusalem to bring them a gift, right? But he gets over there, and he starts by going up top to Philippi, and he gets down here, and they're about to kill him. So instead of coming this way and get on a boat. He decides he's going back around and ends up at Troas and then starts sailing down this way. Uh, he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he just left those guys and they probably talk a long time. So he's like, he ends up saying here to Miletus and then next chapter, he's going to have the Ephesian elders come down. He's going to give them a speech, which is pretty famous. But uh, I, I point all that out to say, like, there's a lot of movement going on here. Okay. He's going through a lot of cities, Okay? We've seen in from Acts chapter 16 to Acts chapter 19, we saw Paul go through a bunch of these cities and plants churches, right? When we talk about Macedonia, in here it just says he went to the cities of Macedonia, but we have Philippi up there at the top, and Phiphilus we talked about, Apollonia we talked about, Thessalonica, he planted a church there, right? The church to Uh, the letter to the Thessalonians is your Bible. Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We talked about that. Then he sailed down to Athens. We talked about Paul at Mars Hill. We talked about Paul in Corinth. So these are all places that he had planted churches in. Okay. And then on this side, Troas, he's been there before. Ephesus, he's been there. And he, he stops at all these little cities along the way. Over and over, we're told that Paul is visiting with the churches and doing something. What is he doing? That's a great question, but actually let me start with this question. If I say something three times in a row, does that make you pay attention? If I say something three times in a row, would that make you pay attention? Like if I were to say something three times in a row, (laughs) would you go, oh, maybe this is important. I bring that up because... Um, we have, like, Paul heading through this, right? And he's over here in Ephesus, on the right-hand side of your screen. And it says, before he left, he encourages them and sails to Macedonia. You see that in verse 2, right, or verse 1? After encouraging them, he's talking about the disciples, after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And then when he had gone through the regions of Macedonia, right, So I don't want you to think this is a small part of his journey. He's going all the way up to the north end of the Aegean Sea, going through Philippi, probably Thessalonica, Berea, down through Athens uh, and Corinth. And that's where uh, they would have called Greece when he had gone through Macedonia and given them, verse two, much encouragement, he came to Greece. And then he spent three months, right? And then he starts heading back through the area. And so this is two times already that they've used the word encouragement, right? He encouraged them before he left Ephesus. He went through Macedonia, encouraging the disciples. And then we have this crazy story about Eutychus, which he's famous for falling asleep in a sermon. So like, talk about a low bar, right? Like anybody could be famous. Um, And I'm gonna practice what I preach. So we're gonna go long today. I'm just joking. But Eutychus falls asleep while sitting in a window. It says he's a young man. We're not exactly sure that is, but you know, maybe a 10 to 14-year-old guy here is probably what we're talking about, is what the people who study those types of things tell us. And Paul makes his way down to Eutychus, and the word used here is really odd. The word in the original language is, in verse 10 it says, and Paul went down and bent over him, but the original word is fell on him. So it's a weird, like, he fell out of the window, and then Paul went down and fell on him. And it's like, what are you doing? So I could see why the translators were like, wait, what's happening here? Like, what did Paul actually do? And so they put bent over, because it's a weird word to put in there. And what happened was, it's actually the same word, if you remember a couple weeks ago, when Jeremy was here, and we studied through the prodigal son. You're welcome, Stephen. That um, the prodigal son, the father and the son ran to each other, and it says the father fell on his son. It's like this emotional embrace and hug. And that was actually what was happening here. Like when Paul goes down, he like falls on this young man. Uh, and actually the cross reference, if you look in your Bible, is pointing back to stories uh, in First and Second Kings where the prophet Elijah actually stretches himself out on a young man to raise him from the dead. But anyway, it's this really kind of a weird story. And what I want to point out in that is it's not like he just bent over and like, Oh, that was a close call, but he's okay. Which you might think if you were just kind of reading through faster, like, oh, he bent over. He's like, no, 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 you thought he was dead, but he's good, right? There's that point where he, like, pokes something with a stick and see if it's alive. He's like, no, 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 we're okay. But that's not what happened. What happened was clearly miraculous. What happened was the people there in the city were like, no, 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 Paul taught, he fell out of window and was dead, And then whatever Paul did in this bending over, like, restored him back to life. And that's why it says this, it says the result of this miraculous resuscitation is that in verse 12, they were not a little comforted. Okay, so this word again, I don't usually spend a lot of time on the original language, but this is a unique word that is translated comfort. And it's actually the exact same word that we read earlier He encouraged the disciples before he left Ephesus. He went through Macedonia encouraging. And then after Eutychus falls out of the window and he restores them back to life, it says they were not a little comforted. Same exact Greek word, encouraged. So I'll ask it again. Is it significant that Luke uses the same kind of peculiar Greek word three times in a row, three times in 12 verses? You think that was an accident? He's just like, I'll use that word again. I want to take a second here and explain this a little bit. Um, I don't do this a ton, but if you didn't know, the Bible was not written in English. Shocker. Right? I know, like, we think America is the center of the universe. It's not. Right? So, uh, at the time, we went over it a little bit, like, world history, uh, The Greek Empire basically like conquered the world and then the Roman Empire came and was like in the midst of overtaking the Greek Empire And so everybody spoke Greek because of the Greek Empire the Romans spoke Latin But the the language even though the Romans were in charge now the language hadn't quite caught up with what was taking place there So the universal language at the time it was shifting to Latin, but at the time it was Greek and so most of your New Testament was in Greek and uh, I don't hardly ever talk about this, but people think this. People think that, like, oh, I don't know Greek, so I'm not as spiritual. Mostly, like, people who start studying and listening to lots of podcasts and, like, I need to know Greek in order that I can follow Jesus. No, that's not true. It's nothing like. In the English, it says, like, worship Satan, and in the Greek, it says worship Jesus. It's like, that. people think that it's somehow closer to God if I knew the original language. And that's why I don't spend a lot of time on this, because you're not going to get confused uh, if you read the English. The translators who translated from Greek to English were really good at what they did. And you can read the English and get the exact same message out of it, but I will, the only thing really in this passage that I point out there, because that's my job is to study these things, is this is the exact same word used three times, and it's actually, you didn't even need me to point that out to know that the idea of encouragement was a really big deal, okay? If you had gone bigger picture and just been reading through the book of Acts, uh, Paul, started, Paul and Silas started their missionary journeys in Acts chapter 13, okay? So we are eight chapters in if we count chapter 20. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. That was harder to do with the mic in my hand than I thought, but eight chapters in, right? And in those eight chapters, nine times this word encouraged is used. So so it's not just three times in this chapter, but it's over once a chapter, it says, and they encouraged the disciples. And they encouraged the disciples. And Paul, Acts chapter 14, Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith. Acts chapter 15, they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Acts chapter 16, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and be, and then departed. So you don't have to know Greek to look back and see that these guys in the New Testament they do this encouraging thing a lot. It's, it's not just an add-on. It's not just like, oh, yeah, sometimes we think about maybe encouraging it. Oh, people that need it. No, it's one of the primary things that they do. So maybe we should figure out what it means to encourage somebody. Maybe when we read this, we should be like, do I do that? Well, I don't know. Let's figure out what encouragement is. So I looked it up on the Internet because everybody knows the Internet does not lie. So... Here's what we got on the internet for the definition of encouragement. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you. To encourage is to give support, confidence, or hope, to help stimulate or develop. Encourage is a great word, and I wonder if sometimes it's a little shallow in our current use, in our current culture, because when I think of encouragement, I think of someone giving me a high five, and someone telling me something really positive, you know, like, that's probably on, like, a laminated motivational poster somewhere, right? When life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? If at first you don't succeed, skydiving's not for you, like, someone was encouraging, like, things that people say, but the definition of encouraging is absolutely not shallow and pithy like that. Think about that. To support someone, to give someone confidence, to bring someone hope, to help someone, to stimulate movement or growth, to get them out of idleness, right? Or to develop them, to help them grow in in what they're doing. There's no like shallowness to that definition, And and the definition implies that the way encouragement is given depends on the need of the person receiving the encouragement. Not everybody needs a high five and a super positive approach. Way to go, right? Some need support. Some need help. Some need to be stirred up and motivated. Some need confidence. Some need development. Some need warning. Like, I'm encouraging you. Stop doing that. In fact, if you go through the uses of the word in the last eight chapters, I told you it's used nine times, you will see that encouraging is tied to several different activities. It says they encouraged and they strengthened. It says that they encouraged and they taught the word of God. It says they encouraged through trials and difficulties. It says they encouraged and rejoiced. And it says they encouraged and made many disciples. And then here in chapter 20, we have Paul encouraging by performing a miracle, by raising somebody back to life, so strengthening, teaching God's word, supporting in hardship, rejoicing, disciple making, and miracle, miracles are all ways of encouraging. So, so, do you see how there's some depth there to the word encouraging, that is really wonderful and beautiful? It's not this shallow, like super positivity, extra only. Like it's nuanced, it's adaptable, and it's also universal. Right? There's nobody on planet Earth who doesn't need encouragement. There's no moment like in life where encouragement is inappropriate. Right? Everything else, like oh, I don't know if it's time for that, except for encouragement. There's, there's no time in life where it's like, I don't need anything that encouragement. I don't need support or strength. You can leave that up there for a while because it's good for people to think through or maybe even write down. Right? I don't need support. I don't need help. I don't need to be stirred up. I don't need to be discipled. I don't need to be helped. Like There's no moment like that. Right? There's no moment where encouragement is inappropriate. Now, not every situation requires the same things to be encouraging, right? Bringing hope to someone who's hurting requires a different approach to encouraging someone than encouraging someone who's on a dangerous path, which also requires a different approach to encouraging, to supporting someone who is in need, which would also be different than encouraging someone out of idleness. But encouragement is always needed. It might require wisdom on your part. You know what? Most of the time, Encouragement will depend far less on what you say than how you say it and what you do. Uh, We started this and I was like, what is encouraging? And hopefully you thought through that a little bit. It's, It's very rarely, well, this person came and said a whole bunch of words and I just felt better. Right? It's this person came and gave me a hug. It's this person brought me something. It's this person showed up. It's this person spent some time with me. This person made me feel valuable. This person prioritized me. Right? This person understood. This person just listened. Sometimes in the shallowness of our encouraging culture we think it's just talking. It's very rarely talking. And so I totally understand why the translators translated the word differently in verse 12 than they did in verses one and two, because encouragement looks different in different times of life, and encouragement, when you just thought you lost a son, feels like comfort. Now, here's why I spent so much time on this. I want you to see that encouragement is not a minor part of the way the early church and early Jesus followers communicated with one another. It it wasn't some add-on, right? Encouragement is the primary way the apostles interacted with other believers. Like, they didn't do the same things everywhere they went, but over and over, it says they went through all of Macedonia encouraging. Like, this isn't, like, an optional thing. It was, like, their primary means of interacting with one another. Like, we're here to encourage. Like, this is what we're called to do. It's not, like, it's not an elective, right? If you want to go to, like, college classes, right? We have, like, like required classes, and then we have electives. This isn't optional. It's not like, hey, you could take it if you want, you know, whatever. Like as a Jesus follower, we are called to be encouragers. It was not an optional part of what it meant to follow Christ. It was the primary way people knew you were a Christ follower. And I wonder if the people of God need to be reminded of this. I wonder if the people of God in 2022 see our primary function in the lives of other believers as being encouragers. Because that's what we see in the word of God. I wonder how many people walked into churches this morning in this city. And they were just like, I can't wait to figure out how I can interact with someone I can encourage. Would it change people's perception of the community of Jesus followers? If it was like, every time I walk into there, I got 100 people trying to figure out how they can encourage me. Not, I got a hundred people who are trying to talk at me. We already said those things are different, right? A hundred people who are figuring how they can support me, how they can love me, how they can help me, how they can stir me up and develop me. Like, it's powerful, right? Like, think about how that would transform how people saw us or just the effectiveness of the body of Christ if that's what we were all trying to do every time we gathered together. Or not just gathered together, but as we lived our lives. Now, I don't need to be the Holy Spirit and tell you what to do in your life. But you can think through the interactions and be honest with yourself. If you even thought about how you could be encouraging. Or if you only thought about yourself. Because I think that's what I, the trap I fall into. I walk into a situation and I'm thinking, how can I get what I need out of this? And I spend very little time thinking about how can I be an encouragement in this situation? And I think that's part of like the fallenness of our sinful nature, right? We have to talk ourselves out of only thinking about ourselves all the time. Now, don't misunderstand me. You don't have to instantly become some super extrovert and channel your inner Dutch bros barista, like to be encouraging, right? Hiya, what do you want? Right? Like, if you're that guy, perfect, good for you, right? Some of you are introverts, like, I don't wanna be that person. You don't have to be. But look at the definition it doesn't say anything about being extroverted, it doesn't say anything about over positivity, it doesn't say anything about like shallow movie poster quotes, right? It says everything about being someone who cares about somebody else. You can go into every interaction asking for the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see what will bring support, confidence, development, that'll bring hope in that situation. That is such a powerful gift. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, you're like, okay, Jared, got it. We should be encouraging. Get it. You spent 20 minutes already talking about being encouraging. I get it. But maybe, Jared, you're overstating it a little bit. Like, you said that was the primary way. Like, that seems pretty aggressive. Like, we have to be encouragers. Like, that's really, isn't that a little strong? Like, he used the word three times. Yes, it's a good idea. Maybe it's not the most important word in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to take one more dive back into the original language. Okay, so put your thinking hats on. If you're not scholarly, I apologize, but this is going to be helpful. The Greek word translated encouragement in verse one and encouraged in verse two is the Greek word parakaleo. It's actually a really cool word. I won't spend forever on it, but para is a Greek prefix like parallel. It means to come alongside, right? P-A-R-A, para. Kaleo is actually the word for invite, right? So it's kind of like this beautiful word picture, like to come alongside and invite, right? To like come alongside and invite to support or comfort or come alongside and invite to hope. It's a really cool word, right? Now, if you were a Greek speaker and a Jesus follower, like you you read this in the original language and you heard Luke telling this story because Luke wrote the book of Acts and he said, and they encouraged Parakaleo, the believers before they left Ephesus and they went through Macedonia encouraging Parakaleo like all the way through and then Eutychus falls out the window, and Paul raises him back to life, and then they're not a little paracaleo. You would hear that word, and you'd be like, wait, 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 I have heard that word before. In John, in the Gospel of John, the night before Jesus was hung on the cross, he's talking to his disciples, he says this. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send someone to you later we find out this is the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't call him the Holy Spirit at first. At first he says, I'm going to send someone to you to be with you. I'm going to send the comforter, the parakletos, right? So he says, I'm going to send this parakletos, this alongside inviter. Like this is the, the one, the individual I am sending when I go away. So think about that. Jesus does not call the Holy Spirit comforting. He calls him the comforter. He doesn't say, "Hey, the spirit comforts." He says, "He it's so much about what he does. Like his identity is so wrapped up in this idea of comforting, this parakaleo ing that I call him the comforter. It's like not it's like I mean, this would be a weird analogy, but like if you had a kid that played football, like, most of us would just be like, oh, yeah, he plays football. But if he was, like, incredible, like, the best that ever done it, like, and someone was like, they call him the football player. You'd be like, whoa, I don't even know what that means, but that's incredible. Right? That's what that's what Jesus said. Like, the, the Holy Spirit is not just like, hey, you should hang out with this guy. He's really encouraging. He's really comforting. He says, no, 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 he's the comforter that so much of his identity is tied up in what he does and we just talked about it like it's the same word parakaleo it's it's translated earlier in this chapter acts chapter 20 as encourage right so it's just as accurate to say jesus called him the encourager think about that the spirit of god is called oh you mean the encourager like what does he do oh sometimes he thinks about encouraging no that's all he does like that's all the time Like, oh, so we're followers of Jesus and we're led by the Holy Spirit, but every once in a while we also encourage. Does that make any sense? No. It's the same word translated ten times in your Bible as encouraging. So if he's the encourager and we're following him and led by his spirit, how could we say that we're not about encouraging? Like, how can our interactions be about anything else? So when it says Paul goes from place to place, encouraging the disciples, it's almost like saying Paul, when he went from place to place, he was like Holy Spiriting people. Right? He's, he's going from place to place, Holy Spiriting. That's awesome. Right? Isn't that an incredible picture? Right? What if there was a whole bunch of dads in here that were like Holy Spiriting their children and Holy Spiriting their wives? What if there was a whole bunch of wives in here that were Holy Spiriting other wives in the community? What if there are a bunch of kids in here who are Holy Spiriting their parents? Like, that's what we're talking about here. Like, encouragement is not this optional piece of the Christian life. It's so foundational to God's plan for humanity that he calls his Holy Spirit the encourager, the comforter. But there's an elephant in the room. There's an obvious issue we have to address if we're going to walk in this type of encouragement. Because the story we have in Acts chapter 20, the story ends with the people of God, it says, not a little comforted or not a little encouraged. But in order for God to work this type of encouragement in their midst, somebody had to fall out a window and die. You see that? Like at the end of it, they're like, yes! But in the middle of it, they're like, no! So the encouragement came after circumstances that revealed their despair. You see that? Encouragement came after this difficulty. And we do this thing a lot where we, we talked about it last week, we want God to do something awesome, but we don't want to change. And those things are mutually exclusive. We also like this story, and we want to be not a little encouraged, like it says, but nobody wants to die. There's an old saying that says everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's the same idea. We want the benefits and the blessings of seeing God work mightily, but we don't want to go through the difficulty that might facilitate that. We want a miracle, but we spend our whole lives trying to avoid the types of circumstances that make miracles necessary. We all want to be saved. We don't want to need saving. Like like when you're a little kid, you dream of stepping up to bat, down by three, bases loaded, two strikes, and you hit the grand slam to win the game. Right? Every little kid that's ever had a basketball hoop at some point is like, three seconds left. Lee takes the ball. Five Four, three, two, it's good right down by one. He makes the shot. Like everybody does that. And we we know we want to hit the game winning shot, but in practice when we live our lives, we get really mad when we're down by one. In fact, we get so mad that we give up. I'm I'm probably gonna lose, I'm quitting. So what are you saying, Jared? I should put myself in life-threatening situations so I can see God do a miracle? I should start jumping out of windows so you can all be not a little encouraged? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying there are uncomfortable circumstances like self-sacrificial love and humbling of yourself and confession of sin and praying for your enemies and preferring others more than yourself and loving your neighbor, that all of us are tempted to avoid these difficult circumstances because if we avoid them, we will never see the miracle of God in that difficulty. Right? There's convictions and leadings of the Holy Spirit that we just don't want to go through the difficulty of obeying, and so we'll never know what it's like to be not a little encouraged. Because we don't want anybody to have to die. If we continue with that attitude, I'm just telling you, you will... Never see the miracle of God in those difficult circumstances, and you will never be encouraged the way the Spirit of God longs to encourage you. And you will never be used to encourage others the way the Spirit of God longs to lead and use you to encourage others. For all to be greatly encouraged, somebody had to die in this story. Now, as Christians... We are called to follow the one who died so we might be greatly encouraged, right? We're, we're going to transition now as, as we kind of uh, remember communion. And, like, this is a great segue because we are encouraged because someone died and rose again, just like Eutychus, Right? Like, it's a little bit different story, but it's the same principle. Like, somebody had to do the hard thing. Somebody had to go through the difficulty. Somebody had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and come out the other side. So we would go, hey, there's hope. There's support. There's confidence. There's growth. Jesus actually told us, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. Does anybody like, that's what I felt like doing this morning when I woke up? (laughs) Nobody. Nobody feels like doing that ever. Right? Take up your cross. Like, this is a self-sacrificial thing. Jesus said, the night before he died, he's praying. He's like, I don't want to do this, God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right? So there's this pattern that he has shown us. Right? This example that he has given us of doing what God calls you to above and beyond what you feel like doing. And then he said on the night before his death, he did what we're about to do. He held up a cup and a piece of bread, and he said, do this in remembrance to me. He said, do this to remember the one who died that you might be greatly encouraged. So so we're going to do that right now. Uh, Worship team, you can come on up wherever you're at. Um, We're going to play three songs, right? I tell you three songs uh, because this is self-paced communion, right? We got two tables up here. We got one in the back. Uh, When you're ready, come up, grab a a bread in the cup, head back to your seat, and take it uh, at your own pace. And, And I would encourage you to do the thing that we just talked about. Remember Jesus, right? Remember how he surrendered to the will of the Father. That's a a great thing to remember. We remember how he established a new covenant. We we remember that he promised to send the encourager. And, And we remember, like the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We remember the God whose death and resurrection didn't just make us feel better. But gave us the proof of his power over sin and death that our sin had been forgiven. We remember that. And we receive it and we rejoice in it. Now, We're not fans of you doing something that you don't understand. So if you're not a Christian, this is not like a club thing where you like have to know the handshake to do it. If you're not a Christian, like just don't do this. And I'm not saying you can't do it, right? You'll fall over dead if you drink the juice. But I am saying like, we got enough people in the world that are doing things they don't get. So like, let's just not do that. If you are a believer in Jesus and you want to proclaim that belief, and remind yourself of his goodness towards you and remind yourself of the encouragement that you have received because of his death on the cross, then come on up, grab a cup, grab bread. And if you're not, no big deal. We're glad you're here. This just isn't for you. Now, if you're in that weird spot where you're like, I don't, I I want to, but I've never done it before, accept Jesus in your heart. All it takes is you saying like, hey Lord, I I get it now. Right? If you've never been a Christian before, and this is the moment where God is like, I'm here, I've been calling you to surrender to my will for a long time, and now you're like, I'm ready, and I want to remember what Jesus has done for me. If you make that decision in your heart, come on up, right? and afterwards, come tell me about it. I'd love to hear about it. Uh, but we're going to sing, uh, like I said, three songs. Jake will remind you when there's one song left, if, if uh, you need to come up and, and, and take your communion and pray. Um, we're going to sing these last three songs, and we're going to take some time to just remember how good our God is. Amen? Let's kind of pray. Father, um, we remember your body that was broken for us as you hung on the cross. We remember the blood that was shed. We remember the promise of the new covenant and the hope that it gives us and the support that it means for us and the help and the encouragement. And we're incredibly thankful, Lord. We're humbled. We understand what it cost, how much our sin uh, inconvenienced you, Lord how much you were willing to do to express your love towards us. And that's what's changed us, Lord. Your goodness, your kindness, your grace towards us. It's changed our lives. We identify ourselves as followers of you because of it. And so we take time to remember that sacrifice right now, Lord. Do your work in hearts as we sing these songs, Lord. Let me ask you in mighty precious name. Amen.